Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,426. Today we're going to learn about, well, the car maybe some of you here in the U.S. don't know a lot about, the Alvis. Be prepared to be inspired and informed. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah! Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah! Today I'm in a Wigan in the UK with a very special guest by the name of David Colshaw. David, welcome to Cars Yeah! Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? Absolutely. All right. We're going to have some fun. I know you're going to teach us a few things today. And before I give you a more proper introduction, I always like to ask my guests this. What's one little thing about you that maybe people don't know? Probably my age. May I ask your age today? Just in my 85th year. Well, congratulations. There you go. I love it. <laughs> well, good to be there and good to be active and doing things and most importantly, doing things in the field that you love. And that's what Cars Yeah is all about. So let me give you a more proper introduction and we will dive into this. David Colshaw is an author who has been an AOC member for over 67 years, having joined back in 1955. He's a lifelong fan of the Alvis Mark, which led him to writing the book titled Alvis Society, A Century of Drivers, which chronicles every model and lists every chassis number ever produced, along with many, many owners. According to Alan Stote, who's the chairman of the Alvis Car Company, David possesses two exceptional skills. His meticulous approach to research along with a truly entertaining and engaging style for the reader's enjoyment. I think he's putting the pressure on you today, David. <laughs> the Alvis car has always appealed to a buyer who wants to make his mark in the world, and the list of owners range from politicians to stage and screen actors, sports figures, kings, and even a serial killer. This book has been published by our friends at Veloce Press a hundred years after the very first Alvis emerged from their production line in Coventry. We'll be back in a moment to learn a whole lot more about David and Alvis, but first a word from our sponsors, so please give them a little listen, and we'll be right back. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up, way up, but my usage was the same, and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations, and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 224 9324 and protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. They're talented 
and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkages about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. So, David, we are back. So before we dive into this book and into the Alvis Mark, could you give our listeners a little background on your past? Well, I actually started more in farming. My grandfather was a farmer, and uh, he, he introduced me to farm machinery and animals. In the early stages, I knew more about them than uh, I knew about cars. And unfortunately, uh, when he died, the farm was sold, which um, precluded my going into farming. And I was then taken under the wing of my uncle, who was works manager for the Daimler Company in Coventry. And it was then on in, he taught me a lot about engineering, a lot about motor cars. And uh, and finally, he bought an Elvis himself, which I was overwhelmed with. And eventually... uh, I bought the car off him when I was old enough to drive. So that's basically my uh, my background. Well, this book that you wrote is quite interesting, and I would love to start this by you talking a little bit about the Alvis Mark, because we don't see those over here in the United States. I've seen some at some car shows and things, but I don't know a lot about that mark. Now, it's been around for, as I said at the beginning, 100 years. So could you give us a little bit of a background of the Alvis Mark? Well, let's say how the car company started and maybe a little bit since you've actually owned some Alvises about what the cars are like. Yeah, well, in about 1920, three people got together. Uh, One was Captain G.T. Smith Clark. Um, a man with an, an aeronautical background, and another was Thomas George John. And they fortuitously met after their engineering training, and there was a factory in Coventry which produced um, holly carburetors, and this came available for sale, and uh, the two men took it over and started to produce um, all sorts of engineering items, um, small stationary engines, pumps, and things like that. And then a third uh, person came into the scene, and that was um, one Geoffrey de Freville, who had designed a light car. This interested um, T.G. John, and uh, they took over this design. It was called the Alvis 1030. And that that started the make-off. It was produced for three years, and then it developed into the 1240, the 1250, the 1260. And uh, it was George Thomas Smith Clark who sort of uh, developed the machine. Larger six-cylinder cars were built in the nine, late 1920s and early 30s, and they proved extremely popular. Alvis never made their own bodies. They were always uh, constructed by specialist coach builders. But uh, 
it was always their characteristic fine engineering. They were better known, um, possibly in the aeronautical world, because they made uh, aero engines, which was the bread and butter of the mark. And cars were never numerous and around the sideline, but very, very attractive machines. How would you describe the Alvis vehicle? For those of folks listening that don't know the cars really well, was it more of a like a family car, always had a back seat, or did they also do sports cars? How would you define that vehicle? Well, Alvis worked on the principle that the buyer was always right. And <laughs> there's a huge variety of coach work. They made sports cars, they made limousines. The smallest car they made was um, about 1,400cc, and the largest, 4.3 litres. But every style of coach work imaginable uh, was available to order. The buyer ruled, of course, and in the 1930s, uh, although there were catalogued bodies, at any time, uh, a, a man or a family could go along and say, I want a particular sort of body putting on this particular chassis, and it would be done. Would you say that they were very expensive cars for their time? Um, not as expensive as the Rolls-Royce and Bentley, but of course um, the, the quality was very, very similar. In fact, in many cases, the, the coach was the same. Wow. Like Hooper and Park Ward and uh, famous names like that. Fantastic. You mentioned when you were a young man, you bought your first one. Can you tell us a little bit about that car? Oh, indeed, yes, yes. I'd started my first job and I needed um, needed some transport and I cast around and knowing the reputation of the mark, um, I came across this uh, TA4 and drophead coupe on a car lot nearby. Uh, it had been traded in from uh, a local doctor who had just bought uh, a Bristol 402, which is another extremely rare beast. And uh, I think I paid about £100 for this Alvis, and it served me very well. It was the first of uh, ooh, about 22 Alvis cars I'd, I'd owned from <laughs> then on in. <laughs> 22? Oh, my gosh. I think, you, uh, I think you got addicted a little bit there. I did rather, yes. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. Well, this project for this book, uh, and I mentioned at the beginning, published by our friends at Veloce, how did this project come about? Because this is a rather unique book. Mostly when we see books or read books about cars, they get very deep into the actual cars, the models, all of that. You took a different approach here, and it's about the owners, which is very unique. I don't think I've ever seen another book like this. No. Well, uh, I've been lucky in having the, the confidence of the Elvis Company for very many years and have had exclusive access to their records. And about 25 years ago, I began to realize when I was going through all the records, there were some interesting people on the guarantee cards. When a car was sold, um, a card was made out with the owner's name. And uh, luckily, despite the, the blitz on Coventry in, in 1940, um, these cards all survived. And it's been something of a life's work going through them and finding out uh, who these people were, what they did. And uh, I got to the stage. I thought, well, we've got a book here. The other point, of course, is as well the uh, the uh, the engineering that was recorded, you know, the similar set of uh, what we call build records. 
And I thought it would collate them all together. So I split the whole book up by model and then matched the owners to the particular model, which is substantially how the title Alvis Society came about. And it's proving quite interesting. Uh, and as you say, it's not an approach which has been done before, but it's been extremely rewarding. I love the history and the fact that you broke this up into, I believe there's three chapters. There's 1919 through 1932. 32 through 1940, and then 45 to 67. And you sent me just a short list of some of the interesting people that have owned Alva's cars. And I want to touch on a, a few of these because I found them rather fascinating. And the first one that stood out to me, which brought back a little bit of my, my childhood, was Ephraim Zimblis Jr., who was a actor. And of course, he was on a show here in the United States back when I was a kid, uh, I believe called the FBI. <laughs> Yes, I remember seeing some of those. Yeah, quite fascinating. A couple other actors, uh, Elliot Morgan from MGM Pictures. Uh, there was also, let's see here, um, Fred Jungles, uh, Graham Hollywood aficionado. Why was this car attractive to actors? Because typically we see actors driving unique cars, perhaps sports cars or more regal, fancy cars. And you mentioned that the Alvis was a bit of a, well, it's a coach-built car, so that made it very fancy. But was it because they seem to be more exclusive and unique? Yeah, it's a quality car, but without the ostentation of perhaps a Rolls-Royce or a Bentley. Oh, yes, a lot of um, – I made up a list of um, American connections, which I think you've um, partially touched on already. Hollywood actors like you know James Mason and um, Alberto Moran. We've mentioned Elliot Morgan. There was, of course, uh, Turk, Turk Murphy, the jazz, uh, the jazz man. Yeah, yeah. And I think everyone remembers um, Carmen Miranda, don't they? Oh yeah, yeah, that name. Maybe, maybe us more mature guys. <laughs> yeah, she has the uh, large floral hats. We don't think she actually ever owned one, but she participated in promoting the Alvis TA21 in Hollywood, the Hollywood dealership. Oh, wow. And there are many photographs of her in in that uh, mode. Well, another actor on your list was Tony Curtis, who's a very well-known actor here in the United States. And I remember seeing him in another show where I believe he was driving a, uh, a Dino Ferrari, I believe, uh, might have been a Lamborghini. I can't quite remember, but he certainly was into cool cars. And given its ties to the automotive world, or I'm sorry, the aeronautical world, there's a couple people on your list. The guy, the first transatlantic flight, Sir John Alcock, yeah, was pretty cool. And there's a Colonel Philip Adair from the U.S. Air Force. So it seemed like this car appealed to a wide variety of owners. It did indeed, yes. As I say, uh, the quality was always there, and the aeronautical connection made it very popular with uh, with pilots, both before and after World War II. Very cool. Now, I know that, as I mentioned in your intro, the foreword by uh, Alan Stote, who was the chairman of the Alvis Car Company. Can you tell us a little bit about Alan? Um, yes, Alan... Um, has a sort of a very major nationwide uh, tire business. And uh, when he retired from that and sold the company, um, he managed to buy the Alvis company with the proceeds, as it were. And uh, he's very much a, a laid-on uh, collector. 
was an engineering background, and uh, he liked the Elvis cars so much, he he bought the company. Rather like the Victor Kayam situation, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yes, uh, he's turned the company round, and uh, his latest effort, of course, is what he calls the Recreation Series, where they are so well equipped with spare parts for all the other cars, it is quite possible to build a new one. Wow. And, and they've done exactly that. So you could buy a new Alvis today? You could, well, not off the shelf, but to, to order. I think he's sold um, six of the modern TF-21s in um, in Japan. There is also uh, on the market a uh, 4.3-litre Tourer with a 1937 pattern. And there, there's quite a few videos um, obtainable showing these things around, around the works. This is fascinating. And on the road. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very cool. Yeah. So, as I say, they've been supplying uh, spare parts for owners for a very long time, and it was only a question of time before they put them all together and made a new car. The 4.3-litre is it's virtually indistinguishable from the, uh, the 1937-39 version, except when you uh, raise the bonnet, you see the fuel injection. You go around the front and you see coil springs and silver transverse leaf, but visually, from 20 yards away, you just could not tell the difference. Wow, this is interesting. Yeah, I like to ask my guests about what I call our driving inspirations, people that have been very influential in your life. Is there somebody like that that relates to the Alvis Mark? Not specifically to, to the Alvis Mark. I, I think the biggest influence on my life engineering-wise was my uncle at, at Daimler's. He he owned my uh, he honed my uh, interest in Elvis and my practicality. He was my sort of mentor in engineering terms. That was my uncle William. Oh, uncle. Okay, there we go. Okay, I didn't quite understand. Uncle William Mort. Yes. As your time at Daimler, it sounds like that really embedded your passion for cars. I mean, that was the was that the point in your life when you went. I really want my life to be surrounded with a lot of cars in the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was taken around the Elvis factory by my uncle during my summer holidays. Quite impressed by the machines in there. That the, there were two extremely interesting vehicles going through the shops at that that time. Uh, there were a pair of Tourers which which were being made for a pair of Indian Maharajas. The Maharajas always bought Lanchester cars. But they built these two Daimler Tourers up with Lanchester radiators. And there was there was a pair of them in the workshop when Uncle took me round, round the factory. I was allowed to sit in one, which is uh, <laughs> quite a passion for a young lad. Oh, well, no kidding. You know, Pebble Beach Concours a few years ago featured many cars from the Maharajas that they brought over from India. And I'll have to go back through my pictures and see if there's uh, anything relating to those, because they were all so different and unique. I do remember some Rolls-Royce models. Definitely expanded my awareness of those vehicles uh, built for uh, Indian buyers at the time that were quite extraordinary cars. Yes, they're quite extraordinary characters. I, I think these were made for the uh, Maharaja of Nawanagar. My, me my memory may have slipped there, but... I Certainly, they were a, quite a remarkable machine. They were built on the Daimler 27 horsepower chassis. Wow. But with Lanchester radiators and Vandenplar four-door tourer bodies. And they were a, 
the pair of them were in a light uh, turquoise color. Oh, wow. I'll have to do some research to see some images of those. What would you say was your biggest challenge in compiling all this information for the book? I would assume having a relationship with Alvis and getting into all those owner's cards, if you will, all that information had to be a massive help. Yeah, it was just sort of, uh, Mark, a a quest for knowledge. Mm. I, I could see this information. I had this ambition to pull it all together and uh, transfer it to other people and make it a, a work of reference. We, we've, uh, we've never had um, all the chassis numbers collated before, certainly not by, uh, by models, and uh, it suddenly grew. There's no other way to describe it. It, it grew of its own accord, uh-huh. like a creature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. As you dig deeper, you uncover more and more and more and more. Well, it's quite fantastic. Now, I like to ask my guests about a favorite or specific vehicle out of their past. And you sent me a picture of a garage, and you titled it Three of My Favorite Cars. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about maybe each of these. There's a Chrysler Valiant which I found, oh, that's interesting. There's a three-liter Alvis. And uh, you mentioned the best car I ever owned, a Rover P6 3500S with a Buick drivetrain. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, that was definitely the best car I ever had. Beautifully built, fast, economical. And And why is that? Rover acquired the rights to the small block uh, Buick V8. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's been put in an awful lot of vehicles, Range Rovers, TVRs, all sorts of things. A really classic engine. And I had one of these, a manual version, in the, in the Rover P6 saloon. And I should never have parted with it. It was far, by far and away the best car I ever had. Um, the Chrysler was uh, an entertaining car. and It wasn't the, uh, it wasn't the uh, United States version. It was the, the Australian-built version. Really, really nice, stylish car. My insurance company hated it. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> well, four and a half liters and, uh, uh, and a young driver. Uh-huh. You know, there you uh, go. It didn't go down at all well. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the Alvis, the particular Alvis there, was particularly interesting because it had been originally given to Captain G.T. Smith Clark, who was the chief designer at Alvis, for his retirement present. And... Uh, I got to hear about it, and I managed to buy the car, and I only paid a very, very small sum for it. It wasn't running at the time, but uh, I got it running and uh, used it for an everyday driver, and then I started to realize just how important the car was, and I took it all to pieces and completely rebuilt it from the last nut and bolt. Uh, When I got divorced, I, uh, I mistakenly disposed of it, and it finished up in, in Southern California. Oh, really? Is it still yeah, there? Indeed, indeed. Um, the guy over there sort of neglected it, and uh, it was bought by a man in Holland, which is now there. It's now in Holland, undergoing its second restoration. I keep in touch with the guy on a monthly basis. He's always asking what goes where. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, and it, it ran again under its own power um, about two months ago. Oh, well, very so cool. We, we shall see it around again. So yeah. it's been around. Its second owner took it to Nigeria. Oh, my gosh. A diplomatic posting. Then I got hold of it, and it went to uh, Southern California, and it's uh, now back in Holland. 
His car has so made its rounds. Traveled hours of all time. My goodness. Fascinating. I, I like to be a bit of a car psychologist, and this is a rather unique question. I'll bet no one's ever asked you this. If you were reincarnated, that is, if you were manifest as a vehicle, now it's important to know that this isn't what you want to be because that'd be too easy. This is how you perceive the man in the mirror, who you are, your inner workings inside your head. What type of car would you be, but more importantly, why? Um, I think that's an interesting question. <laughs> yes. I, I think if I, if I had to put myself into one particular car, it wouldn't be an Elvis. I think it would have been an HRG. Okay, and why is that? Well, I used to see these around uh, in my youth. There were never very many of them, but I was smitten with the, uh, with the design of them and the traditional vintage styling. And I thought, well, I'd like to have one of those one day. But that, yes, as I say, a very, very interesting question, that. Well, it always brings out some interesting answers. And HRG, and I went, it was a, obviously a British manufacturing company. Looks like it was based in Calworth, Surrey, founded in 1936. Correct. By a major Edward Halford. But they look like little, the best way I could describe it, maybe for folks on this side of the pond, they look like a little bit like little MGs, if you will. My dad had a 49 MG TC, but, but they look uh, like maybe a little more special. Maybe for racing? Yes, they were racing rallied and usually used Singer engines. Interesting car. If you had to describe why you would be an HRG, what is it about that car that just kind of tugs at your heart and who you are? Yeah, it's just just the image of the thing. Mm. Imagine a, a boy of eight or ten seeing one of these things for the first time. I thought, well, this is this is something which uh, personifies what I believe in. I see a wonderful photo here. I'm looking at a 47 HRG aerodynamic. It almost has a little touch of the Jaguar C-type to it. Jaguar guys are rolling their eyes right now, but it kind of has that rolling fender front end a little bit, but maybe not quite as elegant, but looks like a cool car. They only made a handful of the aerodynamic versions. I think the general public perceived the particular style of the HRGs as the vintage style, the traditional style, and they had no interest whatsoever in, in the modern shape. So I think uh, when the aerodynamic ones come up for sale, two or three of them have been converted back to the traditional styling. I'd be very surprised if many uh, aerodynamics survive. Yeah, I've never seen one before. Quite an interesting car. Well, I always ask my guests about recommending a book. And of course, today we're talking about David's book titled Alvis Society, A Century of Drivers. Fascinating book, interesting history. So many different people had Elvis's. Uh, they appealed to a lot of different people. Have you written some other books, David? Yes. Um, the biggest thing we did was, uh, was the complete catalog of British cars. Oh, my gosh. I did that uh, a very long time ago in conjunction with a colleague of mine, Peter Horobin. And that, that was a commission from uh, a guy called uh, Walter Parrish, who's uh, a book publisher. And he had the idea that uh, there should be a catalogue of the, all the products of the British motor industry by make and by model from 1895 onwards. Wow. Having written a small book on a similar topic, um, he asked Peter and myself, um, would we be interested in, in doing such a huge volume, which we duly did. 
and uh, that came out in 1974, and uh, it's still in print in ebook uh, form. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How long did a book like that take to put together? It took about eight years to put together. Oh, my gosh. I would, I would say that had to take a while. Uh, that's a lot of history. The, the, the basic idea was um, I prepared the narrative and the tables, and Peter Horobin uh, tried to find all the photographs to match the text. Oh, wow. So that was the general split. But that, that book runs to about 400 pages, and uh, you can still get hold of it. Fascinating. <laughs> what, a, what a challenge. Is there another book in your future, do you think? Yes, uh, I'm interested in pulling together all the four-cylinder cars from 1920 to 1950, showing the development of the, the four-cylinder. There's plenty been written about the sixes. They seem to be the, the, the prestige cars. Mm -hmm. But um, the four-cylinder ones, the bread-and-butter ones that people used to use as daily drivers, and they've not had quite as much uh, promotion. And I'm trying to pull something together to uh, cover that deficiency. Well, look forward to that. So I am also a bit of an enabler, David, and I'm going to enable you today to go on what I call the ultimate drive, which means I'm going to park any car in the world in your driveway. You can take it for a drive. And here's the key. You can take anybody with you, including somebody that's no longer with us, which opens up a wide range of co-pilots, or if you want them to drive and you can be the co-pilot. So what does the ultimate drive look like for you if I'm footing the bill? I would love to have met Bernard Herrmann, the film score composer, who had an Elvis. I'm, one of my other passions is American symphonic music, and I would have loved to have met Benny. I'm still in contact with his widow, who lives over here. He was an extraordinary character. Uh, a musical genius, and I would like to have spent half a day with him in his Alvis. <laughs> Which Alvis did he have? Nice. Is that car still around? Somebody still own that? or? Uh, yes. Um, his widow, Norma, uh, kept it until about two years ago. And she's she's my age, mm -hmm. and she decided she couldn't manage it anymore. And I think it went abroad. I see. It went into Europe somewhere. I'm not quite sure where. Fascinating. That would be a fun drive, for sure. <laughs> well, yeah. I would love for you to leave us with some perhaps parting words of wisdom or advice from a uh, more mature gentleman. I'm not going to call you old because you're not. You're still <laughs> going on all cylinders. Uh, yeah, I don't feel old. <laughs> well, good for you. That's because you're active. Could you leave us with some maybe parting words of wisdom or inspiration or maybe a success quote that you're fond of? Mark, that is a huge question. <laughs> of course. I always leave with the best. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really huge question. No, I, I'd advise people to reject all this modern technology. Let's get back to basics. Let's start enjoying our cars again. Let's have enough of this electric nonsense. Let's, let's go back to petrols and diesels.
Well, you know, I think uh, maybe the market is doing just that, as I've been reading of late, a lot of challenges with major, major car makers that, guess what? Most people don't want an electric car in their life yet. Maybe someday down the road, but all these manufacturers that have uh, retooled and redesigned and remanufactured and are making electric vehicles are realizing that people have, are kind of rejecting them. So maybe you're getting your wish after all. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, I like to say the word, don't tether me, because these uh, electric cars many times mean you're kind of tethered to that cord. Uh, they kind of, uh, not as much fun and, and a lot more complicated in, may, in many ways uh, than something fun and old. So uh, I like your suggestion for us today. Uh, is there a way for people to keep up with you? Are you active anywhere out there in the world where people can follow you? Or is the best thing is to drive people to Veloce? where they can buy a copy of your book. I'm quite sad about that, Mark. <laughs> well, I have a feeling with your love for old technology, you're probably not one to be on social media or maybe even have a website. Would I be correct in that? No, I've not got a website. You do or you don't? I don't have one. You no. don't. There you go. Well, <laughs> you're having more fun playing with cars, and I, I applaud you for that. I'll make sure I direct you listeners to uh, a resource where you can go and buy a copy of this book. Uh, it's quite unique. It's quite different, and I think your eyebrows will go up when you see some of the many, many people that have owned these things. You know what I didn't ask you, and I want to touch on this real quick because it's intriguing. I mentioned in the intro that a serial killer drove an Alvis. Who on earth was that? That was a man called John George Hay. This would be about 1948 period. He uh, he bought an Elvis Speed 20 car with the insurance money from a Ligonda, which mysteriously disappeared over a cliff. And there are a series of his contacts that um, he uh, did away with. He thought he would never be detected because he destroyed the bodies in vats of acid. He was known as the acid bath murderer and murdered about five people. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, obviously they caught him. They caught him, yes, from uh, one of his victims' dental records. Oh, my goodness. Of all things. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. what did it. Oh, my gosh. Crazy stories. Well, again, this book is full of a lot of interesting facts and details about Elvis and the people that owned him in the past. You know, before I let you go, David, I want to do a shout out to our friends at Veloce Publishing, uh, Kevin and Geraldine. They're the ones that introduced me to David. So thank you, you two, for uh, making new friends uh, with us here on Cars Yeah. David, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule. And I'm so glad you have a busy schedule for sharing your new year book with all of us and educating us a little bit more about Alvis, especially those of us on this side of the pond. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. I'm most grateful, Mark, for this introduction. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Well, as they say, cheers. It was all my pleasure. I'm honored to say that my charity of choice here at Cars yeah! is Tech Force Foundation. They help young people find an education and career that aligns with their passions. For those who love cars, problem solving, and working with their hands, a career as a professional automotive technician is the perfect fit for a fulfilling life. We're all wired differently, and not every successful career demands a four-year university. Technical education and the skilled trades matter, and we need qualified skilled technicians 
to keep our vehicles rolling. Learn more about how you can support tomorrow's driving force and workforce of technicians at techforce.org, like I do here at Cars Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.